0: Our Father, Jesus said that when you pray, pray like this. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We don't use that word hallowed too often, but it means that we pray that your name would be honored. And we look around in our nation at this time, your name is not being honored. But we want it to be honored Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. That's the kingdom we're looking for. We're thankful that uh, you have redeemed us through the blood of Christ. You've opened our eyes. You've called us into the body of Christ. Um, what blessed men we are, that Christ is our Savior, and he is our Master, and he is our Lord, and he is our Shepherd, and he's walking us through life. Uh, We look forward to the day when Jesus will come back. We look forward to the day when there will be a new earth, there'll be a new heaven, there'll be a new Jerusalem. All the pain, all the suffering, all the difficulty, all the stress, all the toil, all the broken relationships, all the cancer, all, all, all of that is all, all the sin. It's all over. It's done forever. 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 Huh. We're looking forward to your kingdom coming. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Lord, in our lives, help us to do your will. We don't always get it right. We thank, we're thankful for your patience and for your kindness. We are thankful for your forgiveness when we sin, even as believers. You'll never turn us away. But Lord, we want your will in our lives. And we thank you, Lord, that even when things get turned upside down in our lives, in our nation, in our world, you are working your will. And no one, nothing, can stop or thwart your will. There's not a force in the earth that can stand against you. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Every day we need your provision. We can't breathe without you. We can't walk across the street without you. There are men who had strokes today. They can't do right now what they could do 12 hours ago. The fact that we can is your grace and mercy. You continue to sustain us on a daily basis. Sometimes, sometimes Lord, we have our ups and downs financially. Sometimes we're just hanging by our fingernails financially and we're wondering how are we are gonna make it and somehow you get us through that day. Then we wake up and how are we gonna make it? You get us through that day. It's what you do. Give us this day our daily bread. And deliver us from evil. There's evil all around us. But we thank you (laughs) that we're in the Father's hand. And no one can snatch us out of his hand. We need to be on the alert. Your Your adversary, the devil, goes about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So keep us alert to the evil. Keep us alert to that getting into our hearts and minds. We want to be steadfast on your word. That's why we're here tonight to study. Deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And somewhere in there, Lord, I forgot something really important. Forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. We receive so much grace from you. You have forgiven us of so much, yet it's so easy for us to refuse to forgive others who have hurt us. What a mistake that is. People hurt us, people betray us, people uh, do damage to us, and we just have such a problem forgiving them, but it's because we are not thinking clearly about the forgiveness we receive from you. Help us to correct that thinking. We don't necessarily have to like those people but we want their best interests, Lord, that they would receive mercy and grace. So many of them are blind. They can't see the truth. Do a work in their hearts as you've done a work in our hearts. We commit our lives to you tonight. Open your word. Let us behold wonderful things from your truth. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, gentlemen, we're back in Ecclesiastes 3. This uh, may be the title of this tonight is Take (laughs) 2. If you just walked in, uh, I'm going back over what we did last week. We're going to try to, instead of doing the whole chapter as I tried to do last week, we're going to break it down into two sections. And so tonight in Ecclesiastes 3, we are going to do verses 1 through 15. There's really some significant stuff in here. Let's just dive into it. Last week I made the statement that in in verses, really, three down one through 15, you've got the concept that God is sovereign over your entire life. When we say God is sovereign, and gosh, we talk a lot about that in here, I, I think when you read the Scriptures, you're always running into the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God simply means that God is in absolute control. Absolute, total control. Uh, Psalm 103, his his throne is in the heavens. His sovereignty rules over all. Sovereignty means absolute control. Now, it's interesting, as, we've, as we're going through Ecclesiastes, we see, uh, we've seen, and we will see, the phrase under the sun, under the sun, under the sun. And that's where Solomon kind of went crazy, kind of in midlife, got away from the Lord, knew the Lord, had seen the Lord twice, he appeared to him. Um, But, um, you know, had his own agenda, started ignoring the scriptures. God told him in Deuteronomy 17 that uh, he wasn't to multiply wives, especially you're not to marry foreign wives because they'll turn your heart. That's exactly what happened. So uh, he had a pretty good start. Uh, Probably in his younger years, he wrote Song of Solomon. Middle years, probably did Proverbs, accumulated all those Proverbs, which you can read in your scripture. Um, but then, but then you, as you read his bio in 1 Kings, when you get into 1 Kings 11, those wives started adding up. 700 wives, 300 concubines. Uh, he, would, he would marry those women because that's how they made alliances with other nations, kept uh, war at bay. But uh, all these women had foreign gods, and not only did Solomon build the temple for the Lord... But then he started building temples to these heathen gods around Jerusalem. So he really went off course and started living a life and pursuing the wisdom of men And uh, apart from God. He started living under the sun, and not to spend too much time on this, but he started living life from the secular viewpoint. And we've said it many times, the secular viewpoint our secular education system, our secular government. Uh, We're in a secular culture right now. Uh, Secularism means that you have the view that this is the only world that there is. This is not the only world that there is. But he started living that way. Now, that's life under the sun. This is the only world that there is. But Psalm 103 says, his throne is in the heavens, and his... Sovereignty rules over all. Psalm 115, our our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Um, So God is absolutely sovereign. And what happens in Ecclesiastes is that he wrote this towards the end of his life. He, He came to his senses. We don't have a record of when he repented, of those years that were wasted and away from the Lord. It's very clear, though, that there was a change towards the ends of his life, because you see it in Ecclesiastes. He talks about that path he got on that was wrong, and then, and he'll talk about the futility and the emptiness. If you go this way, and I went this way, full out, four bore, 150 miles an hour, and here's what I hit. I found emptiness, 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 emptiness. And then he'll throw in, but fear God. Why? Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning in knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning in wisdom. Where do you find satisfaction in life? And, and then he takes us to the Lord, and he takes us to the sovereignty. And then he'll go down again, and he'll say, this is what I found when I was living under the sun, according to the secular viewpoint. And he'll take some time, and he'll go explore this and this and this, and then he's going to come. But what you want to do in your life, if you're going to have any enjoyment in your life at all, is to fear God, is to know the living God. Uh, okay, this is kind of the pattern. All right, what he's doing in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, he's really strong on the sovereignty of God. He's really strong on the fact that in your life and in my life and in the life of the whole world, that God is in absolute control and God is at work in every detail of your life. Um, Now, uh, we talk about the fact that God has a plan for our lives. Some of you guys have seen a little booklet put out by Campus Crusade for Christ with the, called The Four Spiritual Laws. Uh, law 1, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Uh, uh, you know, we're optimistic because we know Christ. We know the living God. Uh, I know the plans I have for you. Plans for welfare, and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. He gave that in Jeremiah 29 to people who had just lost their nation. They just lost everything. So we, we can have great optimism and great hope, but sometimes we forget that when God is sovereign over my life, and that God has a wonderful plan for my life, and that God's in control of my life, we forget that that includes everything in my life, including the good and the bad. And and we should know this. The things that occur in my life have been appointed by God. There there are no mistakes. There are no accidents. If you look at Ecclesiastes 3.1, he says there is an appointed time for everything. For everything. He doesn't say there's an appointed time for the good things. He says there's an appointed time for everything. And there's a time... For every event under heaven. Well, who did the appointing? Uh, you go up a few verses. Originally, those, these chapters were not in the original text. So if you go back up to 24 to 25 to 26 of chapter 2, who's he talking about? He's talking about God. Uh, he, he is talking about the sovereign God. Uh, he is the God who appointed Everything. He not only appointed everything, he appointed the time for everything. And then he gives us this list, going from two to eight, of, of 14 opposites. And what he's doing by this, he, he's kind of covering the whole sphere of your life and of my life. Um, and see, this is wonderful news, that God has a plan for my life. God does have a wonderful plan for my life. But, but... Here's where Christians run into trouble. Because we, we'll get this, we'll, we'll hear this sometimes. Are you in difficulties? Is your life falling apart? Do you have struggles and problems that you are just overwhelmed with? Well, then you need to come to Jesus. And he'll make everything right. That's a true statement. He'll forgive your sin. He will give you peace with God, Romans chapter 5. Um, He will adopt you into his family. He will forgive you. He will give you eternal life. But oftentimes when we come to Christ, (laughs) see, we're expecting, man, my problems are over. Well, your problems might increase. Now, Now, your root problem has been taken care of. But you see, God works in ways sometimes that shock us. If all we expect is for him to be a sugar daddy, you're going to be shocked. And you're going to be stunned. He works through the good, he works through the bad. And let me say this, he has appointed the good and he has appointed the bad. That's in the text. Um, We read this last week. We read it fast, but some of these things raise some big questions. Um, let's just read through them. 14 opposites in these verses. I'm gonna comment on two of them that I think deserve a little bit of discussion. And, and you say, really? I mean, he appoints the good and the bad. Yeah. You, you know what we're kinda of like? We're kinda of like young guys that get married. You know, you're young, you meet a gal, I mean, she just knocks you off. I mean, yeah, she's unbelievable. I mean, I've got to marry this girl. And you get married. And, you know, you have the ceremony and all that, and you're just kind of, you got your tux, she look great, you'll never look that good again. <laughs> you'll never get into that tux again. <laughs> anyway, so what happens is, you know, and you're going through everything, your friends and their family, and you start doing the vows. For better or worse, rich or poor, in sickness and health, till death do us part. Now, see, when you're young and you're getting married, and you're so excited about life, really, here's what you're thinking, and here's what you're expecting. I'm marrying you for better, for riches, and for health. When you're young, you don't know what you're in for. You think it's all going to be good. But, but see, whoever wrote that ceremony, whoever came up with those words, they weren't young. They were old. I'm telling you, they had miles on the tires. And they'd been married a while. And in the wisdom of old age and the wisdom of many years of marriage, I'm making a commitment. I'm making a commitment for better or what? Uh, For better and what? Worse. Well, see, when you're young, you don't think it's gonna get worse. It's gonna get worse. Worse than you ever imagined. For better or worse, in sickness and in health. See, when you're young, you've never been sick. I mean, you're young. You play basketball. You don't even stretch. You've never pulled a hamstring. You don't know, you know anything about injuries. You see? You just go out and do what you want to do because you're young. For better or worse, richer, or poorer. Oh, richer. You think what you're going to do is you're going to make your mark and you're going to start this thing and you're going to do this and you're going to do pretty well. But you never think about getting poor. You never, you never think about starting a company and then losing a company. You never think about having a final... Bankruptcy. You never think about, because so you know, you're young. This is how we can view the Christian life. But see, here's what we need to know, is that God is sovereign over everything in my life, including the good and the bad. Now that raises questions. We'll get to those in a minute. There's a time to give birth, and there's a time to die. Um, yes, there is. Time to give birth, and there's a time to die. Your whole life is in the hands of God. Psalm 31. My times are in your hand. Okay. There's a time to plant. There's a time to uproot. What is planted? Time to kill and a time to heal. Now stop and think about it. There's a time to kill? I thought Christians weren't supposed to kill. But there's a time to kill. We'll come back to that. There's a time to tear down and a time to build up. I mean, just look at your life. These are general statements about life. There's a time in your life to tear something down. There's a time to build up. You've done it. You've torn down and you've built up. Um, there's a time to weep and a time to laugh, and sometimes it happens within the same hour. Isn't that funny? I remember my dad's memorial service. Did we have some tears? Yeah. Did we laugh? We laughed more than we cried. Do we miss him? Yeah, but we just, he's quite a guy. We had a lot of stories. A lot of good memories. Uh, There's a time to mourn and a time to dance, unless you're Baptist. (laughs) Or Assembly of God or whatever, you know, whatever you are that you can't dance. Nazarene, a lot of people can't dance. They can't dance. They just can't dance. (laughs) Even if they could dance, they couldn't dance. Okay. Uh, There's a time to throw stones, and there's a time to gather stones. Okay, you're getting this. Time to search, time to give up is lost. Let me tell you something. Have you ever had to give up something as lost? Sometimes it's minor. Sometimes it's major. Some of you, there, I imagine there's somebody in here and you've got a runaway child in your family or extended family and you don't know where they are. That's tough. That's tough. A time to keep, a time to throw away, a time to tear apart, a time to sew together, a time to be silent, a time to speak. Yes, and a lot of times we reverse those things. At least I do. Mm-hmm. There's a time to love and a time to hate. To hate, we talked about that last week in Proverbs 6. There are seven things which God hates. We should hate those things. And we should hate them in our own lives. Won't go to them. You can look it up. There's a time for war, and there's a time for peace. Wait a minute, a time for war? Uh, I, I, uh, in that list of things that we encounter as we go through life, uh, I'm going to delve into this for a minute. It, it says there is a time to kill in verse 3, and then it says in verse 8, there is a time for war. I thought Christians were to turn the other cheek. I thought Christians were to not want to get into violence. I thought, okay. Um, I want to deal with this because I think there's a lot of confusion. Uh, There's a book that I read 30-some years ago called The Goodness of God by John Winham, W-E-N-H-A-M. Taught in England with J.I. Packer, very solid biblically. This is a book that deals with the really tough issues of life. For instance, is God really good? What about cruelty and suffering and deformed babies and war and famine? And what about hell? Those are tough issues. Those are hard issues. He takes them on. And honestly, about 95% of what he comes up with, I think, is solid as can be. Uh, he gets on the issue of hell and he starts to waver a little bit in my opinion but this guy's good uh, 90% of my library is in storage and it's not cataloged and I really needed this book so I found it used on Amazon Prime and got it in time it cost me $3,000 no it didn't shipping. No, free shipping with Prime. I got Prime. Okay. Now, let me show you something. Uh, Flip over. And and we're going to talk about war here for a few minutes. And we're going to talk about is there a time for war and there's a time to kill for Christians? I'm not going to spend a lot of time, but I want to spend some time. Uh, Before we go into that, flip over to Genesis 9.6, which you'll see why we're flipping to Genesis 9.6. Um, Genesis 9, God blessed Noah and his son, said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Gives them some instructions. Verse 5. Surely I will require your life blood. From every beast I will require it. From every man, from every man's brother I will require the life of a man. The life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God He made him. He made man. That's tough stuff. Uh, God so values life that if you kill, if you, let's put it this way, actually if you murder, if it's premeditated murder, uh, it requires your life. And other passages of scripture, it's to be swift. It's to be swift. Uh, That raises some questions for a lot of people. Now, there, in, in, as you go through the Old Testament, they had cities of refuge in case you killed a man by accident. It was manslaughter, and you could flee. As long as you were in that city, you were safe. Okay, that's what I want to talk about for a minute. Uh, this is a section called Death Penalty. He says, he says, the Sermon on the Mount forbids not merely killing, but even hating, whereas the Old Testament has a long list of crimes For which the holy community must exact the death penalty. He said it needs to be clearly understood that a a defense of the morality of Old Testament law in Old Testament times does not necessarily imply that these laws should be reimposed today. Christians were and are bidden to study the Old Testament diligently, but it is nowhere said that they should go into all the world and impose the entire Old Testament law on every society. Now there's the moral law of God. You had the civil law, you had the ceremonial law, and you have the moral law. Now, stay with me here. Uh, He says, and I'm skipping stuff. This guy has a very tight, well-reasoned argument, but I'm trying to highlight it. Christians were, in fact, told to obey the law of the land where they lived unless the law contravened the law of God. I had someone ask me at noon today, so what do we do with this government that is full of lawlessness at the very top? How do we respond to that government? Because Romans 13 says we're to obey the civil authorities, and you are. We are to obey the laws of the land. Um, It's interesting, we have leaders not obeying the laws of the land. But we are to obey the laws of the land. Now, when the government tells us, when they give us a law that is counter to the word of God, you know what our job is? It's to obey God and not the government. We obey the, the civil government until the civil government says you diso- When the civil government says, bow down to that image, or we're throwing you in the fire. We say, oh, king, we don't even need to give you an answer on this. Our God is able to deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we're not bowing down. Okay? So we're to obey the law of the land. As long as it doesn't require us to disobey the word of God. Whether or not the old directions are still relevant, he's talking about all of them, and how precisely they should be applied if they are relevant are questions demanding careful study in each case. We are therefore concerned at this juncture to show that only the commands attributed to God... Here's his purpose. At this point, what he's trying to do is to only show that the commands attributed to God were not unjust or unloving in their Old Testament context. So you look at Old Testament law, man, that wasn't just, that wasn't loving. Actually, they were just and they were loving. Let's go on. talks about how we react to the scripture sometimes. In the climate of our times, one has to run the risk of appearing to be appallingly reactionary to even attempt this. It's my deepening conviction that much modern discussion of violence and war and death lacks realism. And because it lacks realism, it contributes to that very inhumanity of man to man, which it is seeking to avoid. The well-intentioned reformer who understa- underestimates the difficulty of his task is on the road which leads to disheartenment and cynicism and finally to acquiescence in cruelty. He goes on later and he makes a case that putting someone in prison for life is inhumane. And he makes a case, this guy does. Okay. Popular opposition to war is a natural and wholesome reaction to something horrible. But in many cases, neither the rationale of the opposition nor its practical outworkings have been thought through. The one who takes original sin seriously knows that life is lived on a descending escalator and that it is a tough job even to stand still. The rank, catch this, the ranks of the unregenerate are continually being refreshed. By an endless stream of new recruits. And from their hearts continually erupt, as Christ said, evil thoughts, fornication, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, licentiousness, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. It is for a world like this that the laws of the Old Testament are framed. It is a world where force, both physical and psychological, play a tremendous part, whether for good or ill, catch this, and one of the primary purposes of Old Testament law is to defend the weak in this world of force. There you go. There's the heart. Is there a time to kill? Yes, when you're defending the weak. So, police officers, you, you want to serve. God bless you guys for serving, putting your tails on the line. You're living in times... It's unbelievable. I, I was talking to a police officer yesterday. He, just, he, he was, we were, he's buying a door. I'm buying bricks. And we're waiting. And he'd been a police officer for 34 years. And pretty high up in a certain department. And I said, man, you must be relieved not to be out in the streets. He said, the streets didn't get me. It was the bureaucracy. That's what got me. He says, pretty tough going to the meetings. I have to explain why the crime rate went up. I said, didn't the crime rate go up because of criminals? He said, well, that's what I thought. He kind of <laughs> smiled. Nice guy, had a, had a great spirit about him. Afri- African-American guy, had a great spirit about him. My mom was with me. He had met my mom. He said, yeah. He, and he said, I got to take this call. It's from my mom. Real sweet with his mom who has dementia. Really a solid Stand-up citizen. You could tell this. This guy was. This was a good man. This was a God-fearing man. But police officers have to deal with. It's unbelievable the pressure, from the very top in this nation. You know it, and I know it. What are they doing? They're defending the weak. There, there's so much more I could read here that I'm not going to read. Let's talk about war for a minute. He's got a section on just war. Let's say this. I'm reading a biography on Augustine, Augustine, however you want to pronounce it. He was the guy who really came up with the just war theory. And I'm just going to give you this. Well, Christians aren't supposed to go to war. Sometimes you go to war. Sometimes you have to go to war. By the way, we're in spiritual warfare. That's Ephesians 6. But sometimes there's physical war. Now, why is there war? James 4, verses 1 through 2 tells you why there is war. That's the explanation. Better read it because this isn't going away anytime soon. Breaking in the new Bible, guys. One, two, three, four. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel, you do not have because you do not ask. And you say, that seems kind of on a personal level. War is always personal. Always. Uh, Someone wants this and they don't have it, and then you get in a fight and, you know, and they kill you or you kill them. This happens with people in power. I want that land. I want that island. I want this. I want that. I want that. I want those minerals. I want those resources. I want, so what do you have? You got war. Okay. Historically, there have been seven principles for a just war. And again, why, why, would you, why would you go to war? Because you've got to defend the weak, and there are certain principles you have to defend. If someone wants to come in and overrun you and overrun your country and overrun your family and rape and pillage and behead people, you better think about going to war. And you better name them by name, because you need to know who your enemy is. Okay? Thought I'd throw that in there. Seven traits, just war. Number one, formal declaration. It should be last resort. There should be just cause, right intention, proportionate means, non-combatant immunity. You can have conscientious objectors. And reasonable reasonable expectation. Now, I can't go into that anymore, except I'll add this. John Stott was working on that. When John Stott, great preacher, died just a few years ago in England, he was a pacifist in college. He and his dad got split over this, and it was really tough. I read his biography. But he started working this through biblically. And he added three things. He said, he actually reduced the the seven conditions to three. He said, its cause, if there's a just war, its cause must be righteous. Its means must be controlled. Its outcome must be predictable. Okay, I'm going to leave it there. That's all I can do. But there is a time to kill, and there is a time for war. I'm going to leave it there. Okay? Now, there's, there's another question in this passage. And we've already kind of talked about it. Um, So I would say the first question that we had on the table is, well, what about killing and war? Here's the second big time question. Um, If God has appointed all things in my life, well, what about my hardships and suffering? Because, see, this is what throws us. If God's in charge of my life completely and totally, I've had some things happen to me that absolutely devastated me. I thought he was a good God. I, I talked with a guy recently, and he, he, was, he was really having a hard time. And he began to share with me some things. And he said, you know, Steve, one of the problems, I, I've, I've had so much disappointment, and I'm wondering what, I, I just am so, I'm just struggling so deeply. And he gave me a number of things. One of the things he said to me, he said, you know, the way I, I moved to Texas, I was with the ministry, and he named the ministry, I was aware of it, good ministry. I was with that ministry, but I was invited to come to this ministry in Texas, and they promised me this and this, and, and I made the move, and I got here, and within three weeks, everything was pulled, and um, I no longer had a job for that ministry. He said it was devastating to me. I said, I imagine it was. He said, no, I don't think you can understand how deep this went. I said, I think I can he, he said, I said, it happened to me. He said, Really? I said, Yeah. Yeah, it did happen to me. I said, Were you married at the time? He goes, No. I said, I was married and had three kids. Went halfway across the country. It didn't take me a few weeks. I was there two hours. Two hours. My wife and kids were in the air. And there had been something that had changed and transpired that if they had told me the day before, they never would have gotten on the plane. I was already on my way. I would have turned around and gone home. These were Christian people. I knew right then that entire chapter of my life was not going to go the way I thought it was going to go. Yet we had prayed for a year. We had prayed. We had gotten good counsel. We had said, Lord, lead us. Lord, show us what to do. And, and he kept leading us. You know how they bring those planes into the gates at DFW and those guys at night are out there with those two red popsicles? <laughs> you know that? That's what we got. And I'm coming in. I'm coming in. Come on. Come on, Steve. Come on. Get in here. Get in here. I'm there. And in two hours, boom. I knew it wasn't going to work. And it didn't work. That was appointed by God. I was devastated. You've had something like that happen to you. Can I say this? It was the plan of God. Steve Saint has written a couple great books. You may be aware of his father, Nate Saint, who was with Jim Elliott, the five missionaries in remote uh, Ecuador who were martyred for their faith by those Indians um steve saint talks about his dad flying off his dad had a little piper cub and would fly off and you know and he'd come back at night and he's five years old and he'd wait for his dad he, he could hear him before he could see him and he remembers the night his dad didn't come back his dad had been martyred he's five years old and i love steve saint the guy has such wisdom so deep in the scriptures so real so practical a business guy yeah I mean, he knows the lord I mean, he really knows his Bible, and he's been, through, he's been through unbelievable stuff. His daughter came back from a missions trip uh, several weeks. She's 21. Uh, you know, hadn't seen her for months. They're loving on her, hugging on her, so glad. They're just in the bedroom talking. She said, hey, Dad, could you give me a glass of water? He said, sure. He gets a glass of water, comes back, and she's dead. What do you do with that? There's a sovereign God who's appointed all events. You know what Steve Saint said, has said? He said, people ask me all the time, man, I read your dad's story and you know, Jim Elliot. and I, that's I, that's how I got called into ministry, and this and this, and what an inspiration, and it changed my whole life and all this. And you know what Steve Saint said in one of his books? He said, Over the years, people asked me about that. And he said, Steve, what do you think about that? Do you, do you think God allowed that to happen? He goes, No, I think God planned it shocks people. Oh, well, God planned it. God is good. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. You've had stuff that God has done in your life that has stunned you and shocked you. Some of you guys have been divorced, and you didn't want the divorce. But it happened. What do you do with that? Some of you guys have cancer. You didn't want cancer. Some of you guys, there's all kinds of things that happen. And sometimes it's just not with us. Sometimes it's with our kids. You know, we have these plans for our kids, and then, you know, you try to nurture them, and you teach them, and you love them, and you do all this stuff, and then you see all of a sudden, suddenly your kid's in something, and you go, oh my gosh, Lord, what are you doing? How could this have happened to my kid? Is that ringing a bell for somebody? (laughs) God's up to something. This This is the hard stuff. Um... So, Thomas Watson wrote this in the 1600s, All Things for Good, based on Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. This is a goldmine of a book. I've read this so many times, I can't tell you how many times I've read it. Uh, This is the new edition that I've just gotten. I was at my doctor's office, and I looked up, And once again, that morning, I thought, I need all things for good, but it's in storage, and I don't know where it is. And I looked up on his shelf, and it was there. And I thought, I gave that to him about six years ago. And I pulled it out, and he hadn't touched it. And I said to his nurse, I'm going to borrow this book that I gave to him. And she said, fine. I was really glad I found it. But can I tell you this? First chapter in Watson's book, All Things for Good, the first chapter in the book, Chapter 1, give me a second, is titled, The Best Things Work for Good to the Godly. The best things. Man, I want the best things, don't you? I want the successful business. I want health. I want a great marriage. uh, I want a second house. uh, I want to go to Hawaii, you know, twice a year, and then I want to ski twice a year, and I want the good life. Well, the best things work for the good, for the godly. You know what chapter 2 is? The worst things work for good. To the godly. Oh, by the way, that chapter is twice as long as the first chapter because we have such a trouble with it. The wor- the the worst things work for good to the godly. Yeah, and some of you guys are in the worst. You have a sovereign God who has appointed every event in your life. I want to go ahead and give you four anchors that are in Ecclesiastes 3, and you'll find them in the next verses. You'll find them really um, from, from 11 down to 15. You say, well, what about 9 and 10? Well, what he's doing in 9 and 10. He's asking a question and he's asked it before. What profit is there to the worker from that in which he toils? We've heard this before in Ecclesiastes. We'll hear it again. I've seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. Uh, I, I find it interesting that in verse 9. What profit is there to the worker from that in which he toils? That word toil... You got it in Genesis 3. When sin came in through Eve and then Adam capitulated and he gave in to sin, there was a curse put on the woman, the man, and the serpent in Genesis 3. And in Genesis 3, the curse put on the man that in your work you shall toil by the sweat of your brow with thorns and thistles. That's, That's significant because... Work was always part of God's plan, but when sin came into the world, the whole thing fell apart. And work, which God always had determined for man to do, work is a good thing. But now, now work is going to be—it's going to be toil. It's going to be frustrating. It, it's going to cause you anxiety. You're going to have to deal with thorns and thistles. And before you can. So you got land, and before you clear the trees, you got to clear the trees, and you got to pull the stumps, and you got to pull the rocks out. That's sweat, that's toil. Work is hard. Work is difficult. Sometimes you go to work, you go to work, you go to work, and you say, "What the heck am I doing? All I'm doing is earning a check." That's how it feels sometimes. See, that's what he's talking about in nine and ten, and so he's coming back to that thing: Is there any gain? And he's going to answer it later. But in verses eleven through fifteen. He's dealing with this when the worst happens in my life, because God's appointed every event. When the worst happens, how do I keep my feet under me? How do, how, do I, how do I handle this? How do I think about this? Well, there are four anchors. Number one, number one that I see here is the power of God. The power of God. Um I get that, quite frankly, from up at verse 1. There is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under the sun. Do you know that it takes power to appoint the timing of every event under the sun? It takes unbelievable power. That's the power of God. Have you ever heard of God's prophetic, prophetic... I can't even say it. His prophetic plan for the ages? You ever been to a prophecy conference? You ever studied the book of Revelation? You ever studied Daniel? God has a plan. His plan involves timing. Uh, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Um, To young men, uh, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and at the right time, he will exalt you. God is all about timing. He is precise In his timing yeah it it takes Christ was born at at the right time Christ died for the ungodly God's all about timing he upholds all things by the word of his power that takes power the power of God is astonishing spoke the world's into existence he upholds all things by the word of his power So the power of God. When when you get shaken by the events that God allows to come into your life, that God has planned, that he has permitted to come into your life, don't forget the power of God. Because the power that has allowed you to get (laughs) to the worst is the power that will bring you out of the worst. Don't ever forget that. Secondly, here's the second anger is the wisdom of God. Uh, verse 11. He has made everything appropriate in his time, or he has made everything beautiful in his time. Um, how does God make everything beautiful in his time? Um, we, we look at stuff that happens to us, and we say, God, where are you? Where are you? What, what is going on in my life? The, the guy that I talked to a while back, and he was just... He was telling me, I know, Steve, you can't understand this, but this is what's happened to me, and I'm just really... Deep. And he was deeply struggling. The other thing he said to me, he said, you know, Steve, I cry, a, I cry a couple hours a day. I said, really? He goes, yeah. He said, I, it's embarrassing. And he had tears in his eyes when he was talking to me. He said, well, I I said, I understand that. He says, you get that? You understand? I go, yeah, I used to cry three to four hours a day. He said, no. I said, yeah. Yeah, in my early 30s, I went through a period of deep depression because God just allowed me. I had all these plans and dreams, and I was going to do this and this. And... So God went ahead and enrolled me in the school of disappointment. And he did. And it crushed me. That's where I learned that verse, He is near to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. I was so crushed, and I was so beaten down. I told my son John this the other day. I had a period in my life where I I became so fearful because it was like I felt like God was completely against me. This is absolutely true. I felt like a quarterback who'd take the snap from center I'd go back to throw, and my lineman would come after me. <laughs> I'm dead serious. I, and I went, I went, hey, look at my jersey. Yay, Jesus. Yay, God. Yay, Trinity. Hey, I'm on your team. What are you doing to me? Well, he wasn't trying to ruin me. He was trying to rebuild me. I remember I had a season where I was so fearful i had had so many things hit me every time i turned around i was getting blindsided that i remember i was home one day by myself and the phone rang i'm just telling you the truth i wouldn't pick it up because i was afraid of more bad news that's how bad i was and see here's the other thing when you're that screwed up Here's what I knew. I knew that God could never, I was done. I knew God, and you know what really devastated me down deep and really was the source of my crying? Was grief. That I knew I'd had a great shot, but I really messed it up because I was stupid, and I knew God would never use me. That was down deep. I had no idea what he was going to do. I I thought all this disqualified me. It couldn't get any worse than this. I remember reading Paul when Paul said he wished that he could die. 2 Corinthians 1. You remember our affliction in Asia when we were excessively burdened beyond our strength so that we despaired even life of self. I looked at that and I went, that's exactly right. I read it again. and read it you remember our burden in Asia when we were excessively burdened? Man, that was me. I was so burdened I couldn't talk. I was excessively burdened beyond my strength. I thought God would never give me more than I could handle. Well, Paul said, God gave you more than you could handle. Excessively burdened beyond my strength. Watch this. So that I despaired even of life itself. Paul didn't want to keep living. And I didn't either that morning. If God had said to me, Steve, go get in your car, get out on the freeway. I'm going to have an 18-wheeler hit your head on and the insurance is paid up. I'll just take you to glory. I'm in. I wouldn't commit suicide because I couldn't do it to my wife and kids. But I'm telling you, I could sure understand why somebody would. Who wasn't anchored. You see? You say, what are the anchors, Steve? First one is the power of God. The second one is the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God. There is a wisdom in our sufferings. There is a wisdom in our disappointments. There is a wisdom... In being in the wilderness, there is a wisdom when God crushes us. Because he's able to take that in his way, in his time, he is able to make the greatest failures and the... what we think are the ends of our lives, which we think are the, 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 the situations of which there is no recovery in our lives. And he is able to weave them, and he's able to work in such a way that he makes them absolutely, well, it's, they're beautiful. And you marvel. John Flavel used to say, learn to adore the providence of God. Ray Steadman used to say, resurrection power always works best in in a graveyard. When you hit the wall, you think you're dead, you think you're finished? Watch him work. There is a wisdom that God takes us through this stuff and I'm going to come back to this. Let me go ahead and give you the next anchor. The next anchor, anchor is the mystery of God. The mystery of God in verse 11. Um, and then the fourth anchor is learning to rejoice in God. Now, let me read these verses, and then I want to give you some illustrations of how they work. Okay? Let's read 11. He has made everything appropriate in his time. He's made everything beautiful in his time. He has also set eternity in their heart. I was reading Don Richardson's book, Eternity in Their Heart. He talks about all the tribes he's worked with over the years. And, and all these different tribes, they, they, there's a sense that there is something more than this life. And they have their different rituals, and some of them have some fables that have been passed on or stories have been passed on that talk about a Messiah who has a book, and they, these these guys aren't Christians. It 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 it's a fascinating work. You know what I always find fascinating when rock stars die. The guy, one of the founders of the Eagles, died last week, um, Glenn Frey. Whenever a rock star dies, and you know these guys are hard living guys, pretty much, Hendrix or any uh, of them, whoever they are. Some rock star dies, hard living, you know, drinking drugs, women, booze, the whole thing, you know, just living life under the sun. This is the only world that there is. And all of a sudden when they die, well they're in a better place. They're making music with, with John Lennon. A, see, why? Why do they how do you say what are you talking about? Ah, eternity's in their heart. They know. They know. Now they don't have the whole picture. They're painting a picture. He has also said eternity in their heart, watch this, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. Here's the deal. You see, (laughs) you don't have enough time on this earth to figure out the big questions of life. See, certain things happen in life, and you're trying to figure out, philosophers do that. They come up with their theories of life and all of this, and, and this is why if you read 1 Corinthians one in First Corinthians two, it says that the foolishness is of God, the foolishness of God, is superior to the wisdom of men. I have found that I'm now 66. I, you know, I'm going to be honest with you. I, I got to tell you something. There's some things I'm starting to figure out about life that I've been clueless about. Just about the time you start to figure it out, <laughs> 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 you're out of here. You're not going to figure out what God's doing. I know that there's nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks, he's good in all his labor. That's the gift of God. And it is. There can be a contentment, not just a futility, not just an emptiness. Someone's always going to have a bigger house, but in your house, there can be a contentment and a thankfulness, even with difficulty, even with stress. My life is in your hands. Yeah, my life is in your hands. My times are in your hands. Psalm 138:8. The Lord will accomplish that which concerns me. George Mueller used to say, "The Lord is my banker. God's my banker." I can't figure out the ups and downs economically. When do I get gold? When do I sell gold? When do I, I got. God's my banker. He'll give me wisdom. I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it. There is nothing to take from it. For God is so worked that men should fear him. He keeps coming back to the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is an awe of God that results in complete dependence and trust in the living God. 15, that which has already been and that which will be has already... Let me back that up. That which is has been already, and that which will be has already been. For God seeks what is passed by. One translation which I think really hits it is that last phrase. God will call the past to account. So what does that mean? Have have you ever in your life gotten to a point, and I just said it, that I think I'm starting to figure some things out in life? I'm starting to learn this lesson. And every time I think I've learned the lesson, what happens? I got to go back and learn the lesson. See, we're constantly relearning lessons. Okay, Now, let me give you some illustrations of this. Um, C.S. Lewis has helped a lot of people through his wonderful writings. C.S. Lewis was a bachelor until he was nearly 60. Then he met a woman. Uh, joy, and she became the joy of his life. And through an astonishing work, they were married. Uh, it was the happiest time of his life. And then she got cancer, and four years later, he buried her. What do you do with that? Uh, later on, Lewis wrote a book called A Grief Observed and his journey through grief. He'd never had a love like that. And when you have a love like that, man, you're going you're, you're to have a grief. And through that experience, he wrote a book that has helped hundreds of thousands of people deal with grief. Think about Joseph. Joseph. Here's a kid, 17 years old. He's got his plans, he's got his hopes, he's got his dreams. His brothers hate his guts. In his immaturity, he shared some of the dreams that God had put on his heart. Um, He was his dad's favorite, clearly, because he was born of his favorite wife, which was Rachel, he was the firstborn. He was given the coat from LLB, and the other boys didn't get one. (laughs) You know the jealousy thing, you know the whole story. So... He's going to go help his brothers. The dad says, go see your brothers. They're shepherding up north. They see him coming. You know the story. They sell him to a band of Midianite slavers. And for the rest of his life, he's going to be in slavery. He's going to be sold in Egypt. That probably means, I mean, the odds are he won't live past 25 because the Egyptians weren't big on real, real, big on workings come. I mean, they just work you and you die. That was it. But through an amazing Series of events, providential. Can we say this? Did the worst happen to Joseph? Absolutely the worst. He'd never see his dad again. He'd never see his family. I mean, you're, he was, he's going to be a slave for the rest of his life. Fast forward what God does, the providence of God, the power of God, the wisdom of God, the wisdom of God, the wisdom of God. You can never figure out the wisdom of God. Isaiah 55, 8. My ways are not your ways. You think you're finished? You have no idea what he's doing. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways above your ways and my thoughts above your thoughts. Who but God would think of something like this? Takes this boy in. Potiphar buys him. He runs the secret service, the bodyguard for Pharaoh. Dut, dut, dut. You know, he gives him favor. Then Potiphar's wife turns on him. You slept with me. You raped me. No, and he didn't. He, false accusations, thrown in jail, while he's, now he's really finished. And then the two guys come in, and in the night they have dreams, and God gave him the ability to interpret the dreams. And then on the way out, Joseph says to the guy, don't forget me, what'd the guy do? He forgot forgot him. Complete forgot him. Now, how would you feel you were Joseph. I can't catch a break. I just can't. Lord, you keep hitting me. You keep hammering. I'm trying to serve you. I didn't sleep with that girl. She wanted to sleep with me every single night. I wouldn't do it. I did what was right, and I'm in jail. You ever feel that way? Sure you do. I didn't go do this. I didn't go do this. And why am I here? And then at the right time, Pharaoh has a dream. Most powerful man on the face of the earth. God runs those suckers. You know, why I had a dream because God said, "Listen, you little wuss, dream this." <laughs> it's it's in the Hebrew. <laughs> he dreams it. He comes in, you know, and you know, and, man, and none of his guys. And then one of the guys says, "Hey, you know what? I, I, when I was in jail, this guy," and he says, "Get him in here." All right, here's what it means: seven. There's gonna be seven uh, prosperous years, and you better take. and put it away in storage because there's going to be seven years like you've never seen. And you better get somebody to manage this. And he looked at him and said, you're the guy. And he took him from the worst place in Egypt to the highest place. And not only was he equal to Pharaoh, he was a father to Pharaoh. Then his brothers come looking. And you know the story. And then later on, he brings his dad and his brothers, and they're all reunited. And then his dad dies in Genesis 50, and now his brothers freak out because they're afraid. Now he's going to get us. And they say, hey, Joseph, you know, Dad wrote a letter. He wanted us to tell you that he really wants you to be nice to us. That's, That's in Genesis 50. And you know what Joseph said? You don't need to worry, guys. You intended it for evil. But God intended it for good to bring about this present result how could that be ah Ecclesiastes 3 it's a God who appoints everything under the sun so I talked about and I'm on the home stretch here Paul in 2nd Corinthians 1 let's turn over there and then we'll call it because see is it not true? Listen, everybody, you look around, everybody looks okay. Everyone looks fine. Everyone's together. We're not together. We got guys in here that are frantic because of a situation. We got guys in here that are so discouraged. We, we got guys in here that are just figuring out, Lord, what are you doing to me? Why is this in my life? Why can't I catch a break why, why, is, why is my son dealing with this? Why is my daughter dealing with this over here? And I feel so helpless. I don't know what to do. I, I, okay. This is real life. 2 Corinthians 1. I quoted part of it, but I didn't quote the part. that is what we need. 2 Corinthians 1.8. We do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of the affliction which came to us in Asia. We were burdened excessively. Is that you tonight? Burden, not just burdened, burdened excessively. Beyond our strength. So that we despaired even of life itself. So God, why does this happen? Watch tonight. Watch Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. Watch this. So that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. (laughs) You've seen him do it in your life. You've seen his power. You've seen his wisdom. He shocked you before with his goodness and how he has saved you and resurrected you, not just from sin, but from situations where he came in and he just made a way where there was no way for you. But And see, when he does it, you know, you know what happens? We learn, we learn not to trust in ourselves because we got our plans, we got our dreams, we got our hopes, but he's got a better plan and a better plan and, and a better purpose that we cannot see, and he has to wean us, and he has to pull our fingers off our plan and what we think is best and get us not to trust in us, but to trust in him. That's Joseph, that's Paul. That's you. And that's me. That's what he's doing. Is he sovereign? Yes. But he's also good. And he will not leave you there. You are there for a period. And that period of suffering has a beginning, it has a middle, and it has an end. That's how he works. Let's pray. So our Father, this is what gives us hope. That through the good things, and we have so many things. But sometimes we get so beat down, Lord, we, we, <laughs> it's hard for us to praise you. I, I'm just thinking when the great commentator Matthew Henry was robbed. He was on horseback guy came out and took his wallet, robbed him of his money. And later he wrote in his journal, I thank you, Father, that I was robbed. And I thank you that I was not the one who was doing the robbing. Now, there's wisdom. Because he very easily could have been the one who was robbing, but because you had worked in his life and drawn him to Christ... He wasn't a robber. Could have been. It's all perspective, Lord. For the guys tonight who are weary and well-doing, encourage their hearts. We can't figure out your ways, Lord. It's a mystery. We cannot fathom what you're doing. Sometimes we just don't see any possible way out, but you always make a way of escape. Always. You always give a well-timed help. So we just simply ask that you'll give us grace and mercy to endure Help us to rest tonight, and we'll get up in the morning. And we recall Lamentations 3, This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning, new every morning. You will get us through this, and you will be honored, and you will be praised, and we will marvel, and we will tell our children and our grandchildren, of the greatness of God. In his name we pray. Amen.